Hi, welcome to Scattered. We're a group of friends from the same church who are serving God in different countries and we're meeting online to chat through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter. We'd love you to join us. Hello everybody, welcome to Scattered. Uh, I'm here again with Jill and Mary and this week we are looking at chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Esther. So last week we left uh, Esther having just suggested a banquet to King Xerxes and uh, Mordecai, not Mordecai, sorry, Haman is having a giant gallows or as we learned last week a giant spike built to impale Mordecai on. So then we're at chapters six and seven. And in this bit, we see uh, we start with the king not being able to sleep. And so he reads some of the books of what uh, the chronicles of what's gone on in the years past and which results eventually in Mordecai being honored. And then Esther reveals Haman's plot to Xerxes and Haman ends up um, being hanged or impaled. But the question of what happens to the Jews is left unanswered at the end of chapter seven. So ladies, why is what happens in uh, chapter six verses one to three, why is this key to the story? Well, I guess people would say, wouldn't they, that this is where the whole story turns and what a beautiful reminder it is that somebody not being able to sleep at night is such a random event. It's not anything that's planned or anybody's um, concocted it, but that God's at work through the randomness of somebody not sleeping to completely change events, to change who's in control, to change who's powerful. Um, so, yeah, my heart was encouraged that God's at work in really mundane, everyday, unplanned events um, pursuing his purposes and achieving good things. Yeah, I was really struck by um, how subtle and undramatic it was. You know, the king, Haman, eventually we'll see that Haman's plot to for genocide and to kill uh, Mordecai is thwarted by a sleepless night. Uh, I just loved how, you know, that stops us from elevating the individuals involved in this story. Because actually the whole thing swings on a sleepless night. Nobody nobody planned that. You know, it wasn't some dramatic thing that we can hang on a single individual. It was a bit of insomnia. And I just thought that was wonderfully, um, it just showed us how great God is at working in the mundane and that we don't have to look for these big dramatic moments in our lives or in human history, that often God works in the subtle um, constant, consistent way um, that he does. I think it just points towards his rule throughout the whole of human history. We don't have to look for the big dramatic moments in human history or in our own lives, because if you look closely, you can see him working slowly, consistently in all of it, rather than just the big moments. And it's so helpful, isn't it, in dethroning us? So we love to be the centre of our stories, don't we? And actually the centre of this story isn't the courageous acts that Esther took, courageous as they were. It's the fact that the king couldn't sleep that night. And that's so helpful for our hearts, isn't it, to think that God can work in spite of us? You've got Haman as well, haven't you, who also isn't asleep. Because when the king has realised that he's not honoured Mordecai, He's like, who's in the court? So it's still the middle of the night, right? And he's like, who's in the court? And Haman's rocked up with the intention of getting Mordecai basically murdered. 
Um, so again, at nighttime, you've got this this uh, this other guy in the court. Like he says in in verse five, his attendants aren't answered. Haman is standing in the court because he's come f- fresh from having this huge pole built. Um, it just so happens that all these things come together. The king can't sleep, so he talks to his attendants, and Haman's come along, and just so happens to be there when the king's still awake. And it's just yeah, it's just amazing, isn't it, that all these things come together? We don't see all the tiny cogs that are you know, in motion in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. Um, and it's just amazing, isn't it, that God holds all of that in his mind um, and can, you know, control all of that. It's it's just amazing. It's hard for us to keep reminding our own hearts of that, though, isn't it? I, I guess when something, when a cog turns in a way that we don't expect, it's so easy to be thrown by it, isn't it? Or to think, oh, that's not my plan. But I just need constantly to keep reminding my heart that God's, cogs are always turning in the right time and in the right way yeah and I think that you know the ultimate encouragement for God working through the ordinary isn't it is is the birth of Christ like you know this is we'll talk about it in a minute this is the beginning of the reversal of what's going on been going on in this story so far but you know the birth of a baby changed the trajectory of human history it's it's just a little picture of that and I think sometimes we focus so much on the miracles and the big moments don't we and we so like and as we tell ourselves and we tell each other you know God works in the ordinary God works in the ordinary we need to be pointing each other to the birth of a baby we need to be pointing each other to Jesus and saying look how God worked through the birth of a small baby a refugee a homeless refugee in a small town in the Middle East that that was an ordinary moment, and yet it was the most extraordinary moment. We need to be pointing each other to that, don't we? Okay, and then in verse 7, talk to me about what uh, Haman's intention was versus what actually happened, and what do you think about that? Oh, it's made for the screen, isn't it, this kind of story? Like, you, you've you got Haman, who obviously we already know that he's kind of full of pride and hatred, and it just all comes to a head here, doesn't it? Because the king this dramatic irony of the king thinking I need to honor Mordecai what should I do and then you've got Haman coming in and being like oh you know verse six says Haman thought to himself who is there that the king would rather honor than me you know so he gives all these details of what should happen to this person who the king wants to honor and then you can just imagine his face and his shock when the king's like, okay, go and do that for Mordecai. You personally go and do that for Mordecai. You need to lead him through the streets. And oh, it's just it's it's amazing. Like we love we love a twist like that, don't we? So um it's quite enjoyable, but also like really sad as well. But you know, his just his pride and hatred and his murderous intent is is just leading to his fall, his dramatic um crumble. It's such a good example, though, isn't it, of the punishment fits the crime and actually the thing that he's dreaming up for himself, he has to do for his enemy and the person he hates. I was I was interested here by the sort of contrast between um, Mordecai, who hasn't actually been mentioned very much, but Mordecai and Haman. You know, Mordecai wasn't rewarded by the king for what he did back in the beginning of the book. You know, he saved the king's life, but he wasn't rewarded. And yet he faithfully continued to serve the king. He didn't get go out to go and get his, get his reward, did he? And then Haman, who is full of pride and self-obsession, 
And, you know, his request was sort of, was intended to honour the king, wasn't it? But also reinforce Haman's relationship with him. Um, and Haman basically, you know, for Haman, honour meant royalty, right? And so for Haman, for him to be in with the king, there was no other honour left to him except to sort of share in the king's own power and prestige. And yet he suffers this crushing humiliation. I just thought it was an interest. I'm not saying that Mordecai is a wonderful man, but it was just an interesting character contrast, um, given what we know about what happens later in the book. Well, and it's interesting, isn't it, how nothing is enough for Haman. He, you know, it's insatiable is his desire and the, the pride and the hatred that consume his heart. He can't ever fill them. And that's contrasted, isn't it, beautifully with at the end of this episode, Mordecai just goes back to work. You know, he doesn't go and tell people all the, all the details of how he's been so honoured. He just gets back to work because that's not what he's consumed by in the same way that Haman is. So, yeah, I saw that contrast really strongly with the... And then Mordecai went back to work. I did kind of think... I like that word uh, consume that you use, Jill. Like, I do think pride does that, doesn't it? It does kind of consume us. We are, like, in our pride, we... Like, you can see here, can't you? Haman's become blind to reality in his pride. And I think that's what pride does to our hearts as well. Like, I... I find it like super easy to point to him and be like, oh, look at this is what happens when you're really proud. But I can see like threads of it in my own heart. And it's just a warning, isn't it, to us to like to watch our hearts and keep an eye on our hearts because, you know, God will bring us up short um, where, where we're blind to what we're doing in our pride. Um, God will bring us up short like he's loving, but also he's he's. He, he doesn't want us to be proud. So he will do, you know, do things in our lives to bring, to show us how we're being proud. Um, and sometimes that's painful, isn't it? I, I listened to a really helpful preach on this a few months ago, and it was talking about humility and how we cultivate that in our own hearts. And this is a big, yeah, it's a big fight for me because I think I'm great a lot of the time. And um, really, guy, <laughs> sorry, I, you know that. <laughs> Um, this guy was just saying that he um, just says to himself regularly, I'm an average husband, I'm an average father, I'm an average minister, and that's okay because God's extraordinary and I don't need to be. And that's just been so helpful for me to be rubbing into my heart really regularly. I'm average and, and that's okay because that's the way God's made me and my role isn't to be extraordinary, it's to point to, be, to the one who is rather than to try and be that myself. And yeah, that has been a game changer for me in just regularly returning to that. Because then when something goes wrong or you make a mistake, it's not crushing, is it? Because I'm average and I do make mistakes and that's okay. Yeah, we have such high expectations of ourselves, don't we? And that's such an issue because we then try and live up to those expectations. And yeah, we'll, we will always fail. Um, or pretend. Yeah. yeah. And I think not only do we in our own pride do that but also we live in a culture that says you are extraordinary you you know you are special you are extraordinary you were meant for xyz and yes in some respects we are extraordinary as christians we are um god's people we are going to a place um eventually we know our ultimate destination which is heaven you know in those ways we're extraordinary but in the day to day we are one of billions of people and we are normal and we are average and um, God 
still works through that. And that's so, like you said, that's okay because, it's like, liberating. like Jumpy says, you know, it's, it's more than okay. It's liberating, I think. To yeah, just, it's liberating because then you don't feel the need to strive. You don't feel the need to be better than everyone else. You know, I'm as normal as you are. We are the same. We are equally average. And yet God is um, doing extraordinary things through our ordinariness. So this is the beginning um, of quite a few reversals that we see in the book of Esther. We touched on it a minute ago. Uh, what kind of, what reversals do we see here? What do they foreshadow? Yeah, so you've got this reversal of, you know, Haman thinking he's going to be honoured and then obviously Mordecai is. Um, there's the reversal of the pole, isn't there? So we've got Haman building this big pole for uh, Mordecai to be thrown onto or whatever, and it ends up being for him. Um You've got the reversal of the, um, you know, you can see the beginnings of the reversal of the genocide. Um, you've got the reversal of Haman begging Esther, where you know, who's a Jew. So he wants everybody to bow to him. But by the end of chapter seven, we've got him kind of imploring Esther, the Jew, uh, for his life. Um, it's kind of, yeah, you can just see everything's kind of flipping on its head from uh, what Jill was saying at the beginning, from the king just not being able to sleep. Yeah, I was really interested by sort of verse, um, chapter four, verse one, where it's Mordecai going through the city crying. And then by the end of chapter six, it's Mordecai going through the city with honour. You know, mm -hmm. he got his reward. He didn't, he didn't grapple for it. He didn't fight for it. He didn't shout for it, but he's being honoured. Also, the other thing I found interesting was the, um, the appearance of Zeresh, you know, uh, Haman's wife. She often comes up with some pearls. Uh, you know, in chapter 5, verse 14, she advises Haman to kill Mordecai. But by the end of um, chapter 6, verse 13, she's predicting her own husband's ruin. <laughs> you know, mm. it's just these incredible reversals you can see, like you said, just through the king not being able to sleep. I think God loves a good reversal, doesn't he? Yeah, it's all through the Bible, isn't it? What are these reversals pointing to? I mean, I think we talked about it a minute ago, but it'd be good to drive it I home. Think of, I can't think of any big reversals in the Bible, actually, apart from this one. <laughs> I feel like we've got mutiny going on here. Go on, Jill, take it away. I feel um, like so I guess Helen, Helen um, hinted at it earlier, didn't she, with the baby, the refugee baby that's born into poverty and dies on a cross and yet is exalted to the highest place and through that shameful death takes away all our shame, all the punishment that is that we deserve. And he, both Jesus himself is exalted to the highest place and we are exalted with him. So I guess that's the centre point of the whole Bible and is a beautiful example, isn't it, of God doing yeah turning the world on its head and when the world threw its worst at Jesus God was at work accomplishing his purposes and exalting him mm. okay so let's move on to chapter seven and as we do that I just wanted to highlight one thing that as we go through chapters six and seven we've started moving in minutes and hours rather than the rest of the book which has been moving in weeks and months and years you know we're several years on from when Esther uh, became queen 
<clears throat> excuse me, and now we're moving on in minutes and hours. So at the beginning, at the, sorry, at the end of chapter six, it says, whilst they were yet talking with him, with uh, Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So we're now like, boom, 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 boom. We're moving very quickly along now. So at um, the beginning of chapter seven, verses three to six, why is what Esther says here significant? I think, again, we see here the wisdom of Esther and that she really understands the system that she's operating in. And those years of being in the empire have taught her the rules of the empire. And so whilst, again, she starts her request by asking the king if she's favoured by him, she honours him, she's bigging up the king and then she's appealing to him on the basis of that favour. So I think she's really wise in understanding the way it works. And almost once she's established herself as his favourite again, and as the queen that he loves, then she brings the request to him for her people. But it's almost on that personal terms that she's established. I was also struck by the way she is now completely identifying with her people. So we've got in verse three, grant my life. This is my petition. Uh, verse four, for I and my people. Um, so she's totally now aligning herself with her people. Whereas earlier in the book, that was a bit more wobbly for her, I think. Whereas now she's just throwing I, it I all think wobbly's there. generous, Mary. I think it was non-existent earlier on, wasn't it? Yeah, maybe. Um, <laughs> I was being generous. Um, but yeah, we've, I just love that transformation. She's boldly stepping out and, and identifying with the people of God and pleading for them, um, knowing that if this goes wrong, um, then she and her people will all be annihilated. Um, yeah. Yeah, I thought she was very clever in the way she's managed. she manages to incite the king against his best friend and closest advisor, but she manages to not bring the king's wrath down on herself. You know, she she directly quotes the word of, words of the edict in chapter three, verse thirteen, but she doesn't mention the the fact that it was the king was the one who authorized it. And so she manages, and then she manages to do this whilst aligning herself with the king in the process. It's a very fine balance. I thought she did it. Um, she did it very well. And she leaves the king in a bit of a quandary, doesn't she? Because he's obviously, he's in a rage. I mean, he puts down his wine. He's like, hold my wine, <clears throat> which obviously means that this is serious because for the rest of the book, pretty much he's holding wine or drinking it. Um, you know, so this is, a, this is a really big issue for him, isn't he? He's going outside to think about this because he knows he's in a pickle now because he knows he's ordered this edict, but also he knows that his prime minister or whoever has played him um, against his own queen, who he obviously loves, um, or at least thinks is very beautiful and lovely. Yeah, so tell me, tell me, so we've talked about the quandary that King Xerxes is in. He's really, you know, he's really aware that he was the one who authorised all of this. And so he needs to find a way to save face. And presumably that's why he goes out to think through, okay, what have I done? How am I going to get out of this while saving face and making sure I don't lose any power or authority? So how does what Haman does uh, let him off the hook? Why is that controversial? Well, because I think Haman's pleading, isn't it, with Esther for his life, but the king chooses to impose on that um, because... 
a sexual overtone, which we've no real evidence that was there, but it gives the king a convenient thing to a convenient thing to throw at Haman, which means he can avoid the edict and he can kill Haman for an assault on the queen, which wasn't real. But then it doesn't sound like this king's particularly bothered about truth or integrity, is he? <laughs> Yeah, he's he's a volatile king, and Haman knows that, doesn't he? Some, suddenly, he's on the knife edge of the king, isn't he? He's not in his favour anymore, and Haman knows that. Um, and it must be terrifying, no, you know, knowing the power and uh, character of this king. This is a really terrifying moment for Haman. Yeah, I was struck by how at the beginning, Haman was the one in control. And and by the end of chapter six, you've got circumstances wildly out of Haman's control and he's beginning to panic. You know, that's another one of those big reversals. And I think often how we feel when we're in crisis, we think we're in control of our entire lives and something happens and suddenly we realise actually we're not in control of this at all. And we often panic and look for uh, help in places that frankly it won't come. I think the thing that struck me as well, similar to what you were saying, Helen, about Haman thought he was in control, he also had put his faith in the wrong king, hadn't he? So he spent the whole the whole last few chapters cozying up, bigging up the king, getting the king to do what he wants, but and and that what he wants is wealth and recognition, but it's the wrong king that he's cozying up to, and the king he knows the king's fickle and shallow and angry and very volatile and so he just receives the king you know the the other side of the king's um attitude or the king's character but it I, I guess there was a good challenge for me there about what kings are we um looking to to provide us with the things that we need and there's only one good king isn't there that is entirely good and entirely righteous and entirely reliable um yeah, so I, I just I spent a bit of time thinking about that, and yeah, Haman chose a very foolish king. What do you mean, Jill? Do you mean like what? What would be an example of something that we cozy up to? Uh, for me, I think it would be um, people's good opinion of me or people pleasing. So I, you know, there's not a king like that in my life, but generally, I find it hard to say something that would be socially unacceptable or might be a bit awkward or difficult for people because I don't I fear their um the the loss of their approval Mm. so I think that's a constant fight for me that am I worshipping King Jesus or am I worshipping um public opinion Mm. yeah that's helpful yeah I don't struggle with that at all (laughs) what what would it be for you then Mary exactly that (laughs) yeah I think for me it would be um probably being the best at stuff so you know I was thinking earlier about um 99% please Hermione yeah honestly so dear listeners I'm currently doing a master's in uh infectious diseases and to get an average mark, I got an average mark on an essay and it really rocked me. And I recognise that actually, for me, it's not so much about people pleasing. It's more about um, being the best, I guess, academically or being the best at anything I do, which is why I'm very selective about what I do. <laughs> I don't get involved in stuff I know that I can't win. 
We're graced by your presence on this little podcast, Helen. And, and you should be, frankly. You are the you are the best Hermione on this podcast. I'm not okay, really Helen. sure that we're meant to feed each other's sins. <laughs> we're average. You're average, Helen. You exactly. are and that, and so when I got when I got the average mark, I really felt like God saying to me, "You need to be okay with being average. You need to be okay with that because him. that's how I work." So there you go. Anyway, Richard. let's move on. Uh, Esther's, so es- I was quite struck by Esther's lack of pity or mercy towards Haman because I thought, how would I have reacted? I probably would have said something along the lines of, just just strip him of his job. Just don't let him have the honour and place, uh, you know, and worth with you. Just send him home, fire him, send him home. That will be miserable enough. <laughs> Um, and yet she shows absolutely no pity or mercy towards Haman. What do you think about that? Why do you think that might be? Um, and do you think that Haman's je- death was even justified? We talked at the beginning of Esther a bit, didn't we, about how um, about God's justice and sometimes how that's hard to swallow. And I mean, I don't know if Esther would have had much say in it anyway I mean she probably knew the nature of the king's fury um she probably knew that trying to stand in the way would not help anybody um but there's also like echoes isn't there of what happened like we've talked about Haman being an agagite Mm -hmm. which makes me want to go um and he is like a long time ago when when God wanted to wipe out the agagites uh, it was it, was it King Saul who didn't. So there's like echoes here, isn't there, of almost es- Esther finishing Saul's job, um, what Saul didn't do. I don't know if that's right, but I just it kind of reminded me of that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like my kind of puny sense of justice says, oh, put him in prison, and you know. But I, I think God works differently sometimes. And I guess it's important, isn't it, that it, he's not her. He's not crossed her. He's not her personal enemy. He's tried to wipe out God's people. And so it's he's an enemy, isn't he, of God's people and God's plans and God's ways. And so I think the Bible is ruthless with those that stand deliberately against God's people and God's ways. I think one of the things that we can see as we come to the end of chapter 7 um, and as we look back at the rest of the book of Esther is how it reflects the rest of the Bible. So back in Genesis, you know, fallen humans set themselves against God and they were condemned to death. Um, And that sort of fallenness is embodied in Haman, isn't it? We see he sets himself against God. But also I think we need to recognise, don't we, that this is us. We constantly set ourselves against God. Ultimately, Haman dies because he's not reconciled in the right way. He's not reconciled to God. But Haman's condition is the condition of all of us who are not reconciled to God. And, and he, he sets out to live in a way full of pride and self-importance, in a way that seems right to him at the time. But he finds out too late that he set himself against God's people. He finds out, you know, by the time he recognises what he's done, it's just too late. But that is the same for us. That is the same for everyone who is not a Christian. 
that, you know, what happened to Haman is what is a reflection of what will happen to all of those who set themselves against God. And I think it's such a, a kicker up the bum for us to ensure that we are pointing our non-Christian friends to Jesus and helping them and showing them how important it is to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, they are in massive, massive trouble. I don't think that um, I necessarily feel that urgency as much as I should do. Because the fury of uh, King Xerxes is going to be nothing um, compared to God's fury against sin so yeah you kind of think this is a small picture of that isn't it um and it's it is terrifying it's it's kind of yeah wake up call (laughs) yeah but I think also as we're doing that we don't have to be all doomsday do we you know you need to be reconciled to God otherwise look what's going to be what's going to happen to you it's look at the blessings that God's people have enjoyed because of their reconciliation to God. Look at what is possible through Jesus Christ, what is available to you through Jesus Christ. Look at what God did for the Israelites. Look at what God has done for his people who are Christians today. That is available to you too, through Mm. Jesus. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks, ladies. Uh, I think we are doing chapter eight next week. So thanks for listening, everyone, and bye-bye. Bye. Bye.